This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 60, December 23, 1983. It has been a while since we've been together. Uh, not that you have not been getting your tapes regularly, but we taped so many in advance in October that uh, I haven't uh, been doing this now for two months. I've missed doing it because I do enjoy sharing my reading and thinking with you. Well, to begin with, I'd like to discuss a book I have been reading, or rather a set. It is entitled, The Image of War, 1861 to 1865. It's a remarkable collection in five oversized volumes, a project of the National Histor Historical Society. And it was published in 1982 by Doubleday and Company. While there is some text, it is largely the major photographic collection of the war, 1861 to 1865. I have in my hand, for example, Volume 3, The Embattled Confederacy. There are over 650 Civil War photographs in this volume alone, according to the jacket. I've gone through this volume. I'm into Volume 4. The text is not remarkable, just a general survey, but the photographs, many of which have never before been published, are especially telling. However, when you combine the photographs and the text, the impact is tremendous. It was as senseless a war as we have ever had. Both sides entered into it with a totally false perspective, believing that they were going to fight a short war, that neither the Southerners nor the Northerners were capable of standing up before a whiff of uh, gunshot, and that the other side would very quickly fold. A three-month war. Well, it lasted four years. The pictures of some of the generals and officers and men as they went to war represent that jauntiness, a certain cockiness, the feeling that they were the kings of creation and they were going on a fox hunt or they were going out to shoot rabbits and it would soon be over. It was a war of remarkable grimness and bloodiness, and we have still not overcome its effects. Now, I think a good book to read about the war, or what led to it, is Otto Scott's The Secret Six about John Brown and Harper's Ferry. It's available from Ross House Books at $15. I think another important book to read in connection with it is Otto Scott's 
Robespierre, The Voice of Virtue, which is also available from Ross House Books at 9.95. The reason for this, I'm going to take some time to go into. One of the problems that led to the French Revolution was the inability of the monarchy to see the seriousness of the crisis it was in. Louis the king was totally blind to his responsibility. He refused to fire on the mob out of mercy because he was their king, the father of the people. The result was it led to massive bloodshed, the reign of terror, the guillotine, and more. At no point did he face the consequences of his actions. And this is what characterized both sides in 1860. Neither the North nor the South looked honestly and squarely at the consequences of going to war, of their intransigence, the attitude they took, their unwillingness to be reasonable about the issue. Now, our Lord tells us that before we do anything, we are to count the cost. And this is what very few people have done in time of war. One of our problems today, of course, is that we again are guilty of illusions. We've gone to the other extreme. At that time, they believed it would be a very short war. In World War II, the same illusion prevailed. Now, I'm old enough to remember the 20s and 30s. In the 1920s, the Kellogg-Briand Pact was signed. It was heralded all over the year because the gist of the pact was that it supposedly made war illegal and permanently outlawed it. All the major nations signed the treaty. As a matter of fact, the editor of Christian Century at that time Morrison wrote a book about the pact, heralding the outlawry of war. Many people believed that war would never come because it had become too horrible. After all, planes now could fly the ocean, they could cross boundaries, they could discharge weapons that could wipe out a country. The belief was that any war fought would be very brief because there would be virtually total annihilation of the people who fought it. Now we know how long World War II lasted, from 39 to 45. It lasted in spite of the predictions of total annihilation. We have the same kind of predictions today, unrealistic ones. We are told that atomic weapons 
will destroy the face of the earth. That is, the existing supply can do that. I have been told that if a bomb is dropped on San Francisco, we, 150 miles away, will be wiped out also. Well, the devastation in Japan when the bombs were dropped was about a mile. Now, there is a considerable dissipation of energy with each foot so that the total devastation that the bombs are capable of today is four times as much. This does not mean the destruction of the world. It does not mean that even our big cities are going to be leveled with a handful of bombs. But by being unrealistic, as we were before World War II, as we were in 1860, we invite disaster. Moreover, there is another aspect of this. I mentioned the intransigent nature of both North and South. They were incapable of being rational about the issues. One of the books I read recently was a biography of the poet Whittier, entitled Mr. Whittier by Elizabeth Gray Vining, published in 1974. Now, John Greenleaf Whittier was a Quaker, but by taking a stand against slavery, calling for the immediate abolition of slavery, he opened himself to the hatred of thousands of people in the North as well as the South. The whole situation had become one where hatred prevailed. Whittier was mobbed three times. He was condemned to poverty for most of his life. He could never afford to marry. Well-known magazines would not publish his poetry. Mob violence was a common thing in the North against those who were against slavery. For example, when in one community, New England, Pennsylvania Hall became the center of abolitionist meetings, the hall was burned to the ground by a mob. And the mob was shouting, that's liberty, when they saw the building collapse. The next day, they burned a four-story brick orphanage for colored children that had been built by the Quakers. They damaged a Negro church, and so on. This was routine. The problem was that everyone on both sides was concerned with one thing, proving how evil the other side was. Attacking individuals, insisting with total irrationality on their own self-righteousness. 
the results were not surprising. We have the same kind of politics today. Now, I submit that as Christians, then and now, we must take a different attitude. It is all well and good to attack ideas, but to do so with grace. Our purpose must be to convert people, not to destroy them. Now, we try at Chalcedon to analyze and dissect ideas in our books and our reports without being unpleasant about it. We don't say we're perfect at it. But we're trying to persuade and to convert the people who disagree with us. We get people who are very angry with us, both Christians and non-Christians, and write some very, very nasty letters, sometimes unsigned, very commonly unsigned. But on the other hand, I'm glad to say we do get letters from people who totally disagreed with us, who were to the far left, religiously and politically and economically, and tell us they've changed their perspective. We're very happy about that. That's what we're trying to do. Too many people are writing to convince people on their own side. I received something recently that was sent to me by someone who was very eager to have my approval for the material and a book. I was very distressed at the material. Well written, intelligently written, but with one purpose to point the finger at the other side and say, you scoundrels, you villains, in effect, not to convert but to condemn. We try to deal with ideas rather than persons as far as possible. The world is too much given today to confrontation politics designed to obliterate the other side. And the result is we're getting nowhere. This is the product of the conflict of interests idea. The belief that only through total conflict will we accomplish anything. Now I'm going to develop that idea a little further the necessity for harmony, for a belief in the harmony of interests, to work to convert, to evangelize, by skipping back over a number of centuries. One of the eras of history very, very little appreciated is the Middle Ages, so-called middle, supposedly, between the humanism of antiquity and the present, a kind of dark spot in history. I don't think either Catholics or Protestants know much about that era or appreciate it. For one thing, it is assumed that it was an era when the church dominated culture. That was anything but true. As a matter of fact, modern statism 
had its origins in the medieval era. It grew exceedingly powerful then as it brought into focus a pseudo-Christianity and a great deal of paganism and revivals of Roman and Greek ideas. Medieval king was regarded as more holy, more sacred than any priest, bishop, or pope. In France, for example, the monarch could claim that he was anointed with oil brought directly from heaven. In several countries, he claimed power to heal the sick and to protect the king in his realm was for many people to serve God. One writer, Joseph R. Strayer, S-T-R-A-Y-E-R, in a little book published a few years back by Princeton University Press in 1970 and then in paperback in 73, on the medieval origins of the modern state. States this flatly, and I quote, loyalty to the state was stronger than any other loyalty, unquote. It was the major loyalty, not to the church, but to the state. Once or twice through an excommunication or interdict, the papacy was able to stop a king or an emperor in his tracks, but only because there was a certain popular sentiment that worked in their favor and against that ruler. Most of the time, the power was the other way. And bishops and popes could be taken prisoner, humiliated and mistreated at will by the monarchs. Now, let me state something that may never have occurred to you. There were no permanent armies in the medieval states. No permanent armies. How did they rule? They had no police force. They had no permanent armies. The King of England would send somebody or a commission out to try cases. Other monarchs would periodically, and people would obey. The reason for it was that their religious loyalty was essentially to the king. It was their major loyalty. To kill a king was a very serious offense. Killing a priest or a bishop was not particularly serious. Now, because there was that kind of loyalty, the medieval state was able to maintain itself without an army. No modern state has like loyalty. 
And as a result, the medieval state flourished. And ultimately, it was able to pull away from the church, insist on concordats, gain its independence from the Vatican, go into humanism, which was, of course, the Renaissance, and do that very, very openly. Now, all of this is very important for us to realize. The state has commanded that type of unreasoning loyalty for centuries. The Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, for a brief time, gave priority to the faith. Then, with the Enlightenment, loyalty to the state again took over. The theology of the state, of course, rested on power and on conflict. Conflict originally against other monarchs. After all, the divine powers of a king were a divine power in association with his people and his territories. He had a divine right over those territories. But what has happened since then, of course, is that the state has increasingly waged war against things within the state and created confrontation politics within the body politic. And so, instead of international warfare, there is continual civil war as well. Our politics today is a form of civil warfare in every country. And what was begun by the North and South jointly prior to 1861, when war broke out, has continued ever since. Confrontation politics, obliteration politics, the belief that there has to be conflict of necessity and divine right is with each side. Well, only when we approach both sides in terms of the word of God and the law order God requires and say, this is the way and thus saith the Lord, and then try to convert them to the Lord, are we going to have a different kind of order, one in which conversion is basic. You begin with the regeneration of men, and you bring them under the power of Almighty God. Well, I didn't mean to spend as long a time on that, but I think it's a very interesting point. Let me touch on one minor incident, or not incident, fact concerning the medieval era. One of the books I read, also out of print, by James D. Gamble, Battle Axes. Now, uh, that may seem a rather odd subject for me to get interested in, but the kinds of axes built or made during the medieval era and earlier 
provide uh, very interesting reading. The battle axes had a ceremonial purpose for the holy kings, for example, to carry, as well as a practical purpose for use in battle. But uh, their construction sometimes uh, was quite remarkable. And one of the very, very remarkable things uh, was watered steel. And uh, let me read this paragraph. Perhaps the most difficult means of decoration was watered steel. This was a form of decoration that was done at the time of the forging of the steel. Watered steel was accomplished by making a layer of good quality steel with a lesser quality steel or iron, then folding and twisting it over and hammering it out. The steel was then refolded and hammered over and over. In some of the finer Japanese swords, it is estimated that there are more than a million layers. Most watered steel is limited to swords and daggers because they are long and flat and relatively thin. Since axes are thicker, fewer were made by this process and are exceedingly rare. So much for their primitive ways in those days. They knew how to do things. Well, I've been speaking about war. One of the things that marks our time is again, as before World War II, an attempt to disarm people by overstating the uh, horrors of war. There's no question war is a horrible thing. But let me read this item from an older book, Mitchell Gordon's Six Cities. This, and I quote, tells us, the nation suffered more than three times as many casualties on its streets and highways in the period from December 7, 1941 to August 14, 1945, the wartime span, than it did in battle during World War II, which covered that span. U.S. war casualties, including missing, totaled just over one million, one million seventy thousand five hundred and twenty four to be exact compared with three point three million on the road according to the Institute of Traffic Engineers but consider the implications of that there was gas rationing during World War two you couldn't drive very far you had very little gasoline there were not as many cars then because in the cities streetcars and buses predominated. Most uh, passengers were carried that way. And yet there were three times as many victims of trash, uh, traffic casualties as from the war. Shall we abolish automobiles? Some people seem to have such ideas. That's not the only kind of consequence either from those traffic casualties, but I won't go into that. They were far-reaching in their implications. And we have quite a few times as many cars now. Well, on to something else. 
a recent book, Stephen W. Mosher, M-O-S-H-E-R, Broken Earth, the Royal Chinese, published in 1983 by Codiers Macmillan's division, the Free Press. Very interesting work by Stephen Mosher, who spent some time among the rural Chinese. He was a graduate student at Stanford in cultural anthropology. As a result of the articles about his work and what he wrote subsequently, he has been denied his Ph.D. at Stanford at the protest of Red China. What he describes is, of course, the total control that ex extends to the Chinese village. How, although earlier Mao Zedong sought to increase the population, later there was a change of policy and a plan to limit the population. By the way, this was also undertaken by the French Revolution. The goal is first to limit all families to two children. Then, little by little, to institute changes region by region so that there will be one child per family. Any woman pregnant with a third child must secure an abortion, even though she may be seven or eight months along. Now, since sons are so important to the Chinese family, because they constitute the social security of the elderly parents. When a family has two girls in succession, the second daughter is drowned, killed in one way or another, because the parents have no social security without that child. The result is an incredible horror in Red China. He also describes a great deal of the character of the regime, how there is promotion in Red China for ineptitude. A superior loses face of his inferior is incompetent. Therefore, to save face, he gives him a high recommendation and promotes him. That sounds like the Indian service as I knew it some years ago. The book is a very interesting one because Mosier faces very bluntly the question of why when uh, and this is so horrifying to the Chinese who've always regarded children, sons in particular, and as, as an advantage. How are they permitting this? His answer is telling. Moral outrage is limited as well by the sometimes nasty, brutish, and short character of life in overpopulated, famine-prone China and by a lack of a religious tradition grounded in the sanctity of human life. 
Man is not made in God's image in China. Confucius never said, Thou shalt not kill. Unquote. And that's the key. There is no resistance there because there is no faith that provides the power for resistance. There is no resistance anywhere in the world without that Christian faith. This is why this is the key. And without it, we are helpless. So we've got to strengthen the faith of people. Convert them to Christ, make them strong in Christ in order to make possible a true resistance. Now to another book, a very important one. If I'd asked for a book to be written to sum up everything I feel the opposition believes and doesn't come right out and say, this would be it. And this book is the damnation of the antinomians in the Christian community. The book is by a veteran socialist writer, Michael Harrington, just published a couple of months ago, The Politics at God's Funeral. It was published by Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston. The subtitle is The Spiritual Crisis of Western Civilization. The politics at God's funeral. What is he saying? Well, Michael Harrington is an ex-Catholic. As such, he has had a good education and he has a, an astute awareness of how man must live. He sees the question which is the central question of politics by his own admission. Why should I obey anyone else? Now, until you answer that question, you cannot build a social order. And Harrington knows it. And he asks, in a society in which the legitimacy of political power is no longer cloaked in the aura of God, why obey the law? Why die for the common good? And of course, he says that we've got to answer this problem. We've got to answer it because God is dead and his funeral is in process. Now, the point he skirts around that is Implicit in the background is that without God, he says openly, there is no authority. Moreover, behind all law until now, there has been God's law. We've departed from it in recent years. But all the Western world has had behind its law systems, biblical law, the Ten Commandments, now these are junked. How are we going to have any kind of law? How are we going to have any authority? Those are the two key questions that Harrington raises. The tragic fact is that with all the people who claim to believe the Bible from cover to cover in this country, there are so many who refuse to believe in God's law. 
As a result, they have no answer to Harrington. They are all conspiring with him, so to speak, to further humanistic law, which is to say they want God's funeral because take away God's law and God's authority and you declared that God is dead. Well, Harrington says that the hope is to have a new consensus in which no law is binding unless the people have had an effective participation in its formulation. Well, they formulate the laws of Congress today, but they don't obey them. The second principle is that communitarianism, it must be the new transcendental. In other words, the state is God, the community. This is communism. Then there must be an expansion of moral motivation based on this solidarity. We are one family, the family of man, in other words. And then, fourth and finally, there must be a universal agreement to this. Well, how do you get universal agreement to anything? The way you do in Red China and the Soviet Union, by force. So, what is the answer? He recognizes that these principles, which I've just cited, are threadbare from misuse. How are we going to turn them into the vital norms of a truly human and therefore genuinely spiritual society? This is what Harrington asks. His conclusion or answer, politics or nothing. In other words, the state or politics must be our new god or there is no hope. Politics or nothing. Very interesting statement. So we have the politics at God's funeral. And too many churches are there. And by the way, Harrington invites the churches to join with them openly in creating this new order without God. After all, most of the churches are operating on that basis. In fact, he sees the theology of a great many of the modern churches as really in uh, essence with him, that it is humanism under the guise of Christianity. Well, now on to some other things. Uh, I had a number of questions from some of you. I'll try to get to them in various ways. Uh, J. Logodice asked about the voucher plan. Well, the key to that, Jay, is this, that uh, it would have to be redeemed in a bona fide school. That's the statement in the article. What's a bona fide school? Well, it's the one the state approves. So, <laughs> you're going to have the state establishment of Christian schools. That's why the voucher system is no good. Then uh, this tickled me no end. Uh, Colonel George Sapporo sent this. 
It's from the uh, Portland Oregonian. Uh, it's about the police horses because they have a mounted police in Portland. Uh, I'll read the article in its entirety. It's a short one. The title, Police Horses Hold Everything for the Stable. People with pets might borrow a page from the Portland Police Training Procedures. Not the ones for humans, the ones for horses. The Police Horse Patrol has 14 five steeds, nary a nag among them. But each pony is a potential polluter. How to keep them from polluting in public? Lieutenant Dan Noel, who supervises the mounted patrol, says it isn't such a ponderous proposition. Horses, like humans, have certain habits. One is that they eat and secrete. Simple as Simon. The key to selective secreting is timing the eating so that the pollution falls on stable floors where it should fall instead of on the public pavement. Portland's police mounts gets their, get their first meal of oats, bran, alfalfa, and hay early in the morning. That's so it can be digested and properly processed, biologically speaking, at the barn before they head for the streets at about noon. A second feeding is given late at night, but even the best preparations don't always proceed as planned, in which case the human police riders are armed with pollution removal devices. Pet owners know them as pooper scoopers. No one said public service would be pleasant. Well, that's the kind of insanity we're involved in today. Here's another one from the Chronicles of Culture. Remember those valiant homesteaders, pioneers, and cowboys who in old movies captured escaped convicts at the cost of considerable personal peril and physical exertion, delivered them to the arms of justice, and walked away with everyone's respect in Jean Arthur as a potential bride? Well, thanks to liberal lawyering over the last few decades, as well as all those scummy pseudo-humanistic uh, uh, humanitarian legal aid societies and other champions of non-negotiable righteousness. That's no longer how things go. Two law-abiding Montana ranchers who captured two escapees from a state prison and collected a $200 reward for their courage are now being sued for 200000 by one of the inmates they helped return to prison. According to one press release, the suit said the damages are sought because the Kellys violated McHenry's civil rights by shooting at him in an attempt to deprive him of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Who would have ever suspected that the protracted activities of the ACLU would dwarf all efforts of Jari, Kafka, Beckett, Inesco, and Pinter convince us that both life and the human condition are utterly senseless. Next to the case above, hell's a poppin' looks like an exercise in rigid mathematical logic. Well, so much for that. 
bit of wisdom. And uh, this item from the Washington Monthly of November 1983. On Tuesday, October 4, the Rimrock Harvest Store of Billings, Montana, held a management uh, a manure management seminar at the Holiday Inn in Bozeman. Refreshments were served at the event. Well, in case you don't know it, manure management is a big problem nowadays. I visited uh, Modern Dairy a while back, and the dairy was a very interesting one. It used to be that uh, manure was something farmers wanted. Now, people sitting in city offices who don't know anything about farming say that uh, the neighboring farmers can't come and get the manure and haul it away to spread it in their fields. The manure has to be washed off in, from the milking barns into a pool, a holding pool to disintegrate there. Well, when I was a boy on the farm, we thought manure was something very valuable, and we spread it out in the fields, but no. That's becoming illegal, thanks to the wisdom of people in the cities. Well, there's something I'd like to read to you from uh, a story I read recently. Uh harmless little bit of fiction by H.B. Fox. Dirty Politics is Fun. This was published in 1982 by Madrona, M as in Mary, A-D-R-O-N-A Publishers in Seattle. And uh, just to read the key sections of the beginning of this book, Ethics, as Mark Twain said of the truth, is a precious commodity and should be used sparingly. Rich people understand this. Sometimes some of them delay using any till after they're rich. When I established the Oak Hill Gazette, I had a hard time making it go. Regardless of how much fine writing there is in it, no newspaper, neither the Gazette nor the New York Times, can survive without paid advertising. Gradually, through luck and hard work, business picked up, and despite some shaky moments, the paper thrived, and most of the merchants in Oak Hill now habitually advertise in it. But there was one man who wouldn't budge. Who needs advertising, Jasper Hopkins would say when I outlined the benefits of advertising in the Gazette. Everybody knows where this drugstore is, can't miss it been right here on this side of the square for 20 years. But, Mr. Hopkins, wouldn't you like to do a little more business? Sure, but I can't see how contributing to your welfare would bring in any more. Mr. Hopkins, about how many bottles of this mouthwash behind you do you sell in a week? He'd come up to me to say hello. He wouldn't advertise. He's not unfriendly. I sometimes have a prescription filled by him. Oh, I don't know. Two or three, I guess. Why? I want to make you a proposition. If you take a $5 ad in the Gazette promoting that mouthwash, 
and if in two weeks you don't quadruple the number of bottles you're selling now, I won't charge you for the ad. Young man, I'm going to take you up on that. Good. What do you want me to say in the ad? You fix it up. I don't know nothing about that sort of thing. That week's Gazette had this ad. Bad breath. Everybody knows when you have it, you never do. Our special brand of mouthwash, blank, prevents the buildup of bacteria in the oral cav cavities. Try it and you'll see. Only three sixty-nine a bottle. Jasper Hopkins Drug on the Square. Simultaneously with the publication of the ad, 45 handwritten notes in various size envelopes went into the mail, addressed to 45 carefully selected citizens of Oak Hill. The note read, You have bad breath, a friend. By Saturday morning, Jasper had sold 35 bottles. I miscalculated. I guess on the ten who didn't buy. Well, some people just aren't interested in their personal hygiene. From then on till he died four years later, Jasper always had an ad in the Gazette. He left the wording to me. I always tried to pick out an item that was selling very well anyway. An editor concerned with world peace and the future of democracy has no time to be composing 45 handwritten notes every week. Now that I am older and financially independent, I sternly disapprove of such a sales tactic. Well, <laughs> I thought that was delightful. Our time is growing short. I'd like to read something now that... Uh, came from Mike Philbeck. This is about laws. And this is what he writes. It's a rather grim item. October 31, 1983. Sometime shortly after 10.30 a.m., two men entered my wife's dad's place of business. He and his father, ages 59 and 77 respectively, robbed at gunpoint, forced into a back office where my father-in-law was subsequently beaten, stabbed, and shot to death. His dad was choked to a point of unconsciousness and shot in the back of the head. He survived and is recovering. One of the theories the State Bureau of Investigation has given out to the family as to why they killed dad, my father-in-law, and intended to kill his dad is relative, related to a relatively new North Carolina law, which makes a conviction for armed robbery carry an automatic, non-parolable prison sentence. Seven years, I think. Killing the witnesses, victims, is less dangerous under this law than simply robbing them, because, of course, they then leave no one who can identify them. Obviously, this shows the self-destructive nature of humanistic law orders. They tend to compound problems rather than solve them. In pondering how I could respond to the state legislature about changing this law, I have a question which I am unsure of how to deal with. 
Should the restitution required for something like armed robbery be greater than that for breaking and entering, larceny, etc., provided, of course, that no one is hurt, and so on. This is from Mike Philbeck. Well, of course, biblical law requires the execution of habitual criminals, and most such crimes are committed by professional criminals. Their records are page after page, make up a large folder. We once executed all habitual criminals. We no longer do. This is why we have a problem. Another problem, this is from a letter some time back from Howard Phillips of the Conservative Caucus. And this paragraph, I think is important. And one sentence paragraph. According to Independent Sector, a lobby which represents many federally subsidized policy advocacy groups, more than $50 billion is distributed annually among some 100,000 private nonprofit organizations. Now that's how a great deal of the ugly activities which prevail today in this country are subsidized by the federal government through nonprofit agencies which are really arms of the federal government in carrying out a variety of ugly policies. And of course, most people believe in this even though they don't like the results in particular spheres because they believe in the state, not in Jesus Christ. And they look to the power of the state for salvation, not to Jesus Christ. Well, there are many other things I'd like to uh, go into today, but time doesn't permit it. I want to say I'm glad to be back at these regular meetings, and uh, I've missed the time uh, past two months. Perhaps I'd better stagger any of the special tapes we do. It's been a very good year. We're grateful to all of you for your support of Calcedon. We've accomplished a great many things, and we look forward to accomplishing a great deal more in the year ahead. Our staff is growing. Our influence is growing. We're happy to say that we anticipate another staff member, one you've heard on these tapes, although not as a staff member, joining us after the 4th of January. For the present, uh, a very happy and blessed New Year to you all. And I look forward to being with you again in two weeks.